Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. In moments, the political philosopher Jessica White will explore the curiously parallel relationship between neoliberalism and human rights discourse. And then two editors of a collection about and inspired by Alexander Kolontai explore the great Bolshevik feminist analysis of how macro-revolution cannot succeed without a transformation of the micropolitics of sexual and personal relations. First, neoliberalism and human rights, which some might think are political practices in opposition to each other. As Jessica White shows in her new book, The Morals of the Market, just out from Verso, they have curious affinities. Human rights discourse, for all its high-mindedness, perversely assisted the neoliberal project of separating the economic and political, a point that became very clear in Pinochet's Chile. Jessica White is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of New South Wales. In the opening question, I mentioned Manchester liberalism. Manchester was an important center of 19th century British manufacturing, and around it sprung up an economic doctrine centering on free trade and unrestricted markets, a.k.a. laissez-faire. French for let do, meaning leave markets alone and let capitalists do what they want to. Economists of this school thought the approach would bring about prosperity and peace. Not coincidentally, the capitalists of Manchester supported free trade because they thought it would lead to lower prices, which would allow them to pay lower wages. Jessica White. The neo in neoliberal is not an accident. There's a difference between uh, the neoliberal and the 19th century Manchester liberal, right? Could you uh, lay that out for us? Yeah, that's right. And it was certainly a really self-conscious difference in that what people like Friedrich Hayek, when he founded the neoliberal Montpelleron Society in 1947, were doing was attempting to refound liberalism. And they believed that in order to do so, they had to break, particularly with the idea of laissez-faire that had characterised the liberalism of the previous century. And they needed to focus their attention on the legal and the moral framework in which a liberal society could flourish. And so the idea that they're against state intervention is incomplete and inaccurate. They're just against certain kinds of state intervention. That's absolutely right. They're in favour of the forms of state intervention that create the conditions in which a market should operate. Then they're against the forms of intervention, which in their view would mess with the outcomes of the market by redistributing wealth, for instance, or by giving subsidies, rent control, all of these kind of interventions they oppose. But the kind of state interventions which will ensure that people have to operate through the market and in fact, submit to the results of the market they supported. But there's this image of them as being supremely rationalistic. But in fact, they were not. Um, They had uh, uh, some fondness for moral codes and uh, religion, right? This is not uh, a godless view of the world necessarily. Absolutely right. And I think that that's a real sort of misunderstanding of neoliberalism. And it comes from looking at people like, say, Gary Becker of the Chicago School, who you can make an argument when he argues for replacing marriage with temporary contracts between individuals of any gender. This gives the impression neoliberalism is sort of this completely amoral idea. But for the early neoliberals, and I think there's bits of this through the Chicago School as well, they were very much preoccupied with moral questions and they were also preoccupied with the role of religion. So even Hayek, who was himself personally agnostic, said that he believed that people needed religion because it was only religion which ensured that people would submit to that which was incomprehensible. Now, that's a delicious phrase, submit to that which is incomprehensible. Why is that desirable? That's desirable because for Hayek, one of his key insights was that there was no possibility to know the overall 
order of economic relations. And so if you couldn't know, you couldn't plan, which meant that everything needed to be left to the results of the market. And these were necessarily unknowable in their totality. But if this system was going to work, then it required that people submit to the results of the market and that they submit to operating only within the market and not attempting to organise politically to, in his view, distort the results of the market process. Hayek in particular, but the rest of the crew too, um, really didn't like the idea of the economy with a capital E, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's one of the real arguments that I want to make against this idea that neoliberalism was sort of this economic doctrine or a sort of prioritising of the economy over everything else. For Hayek in particular, but I think for most of these figures, they went back to the Greek roots of economia in the oikos, the household, and they believed that talking about an economy gave an idea that there was a sort of a single body with a single set of ends that could be planned and managed in the interest of, for instance, keeping everybody alive or in the interest of a common set of purposes. So Hayek in particular really challenged this idea of the economy. And Thatcher's phrase, a very famous uh, pronouncement, uh, that there is no such thing as society, there's only individuals and their families, uh, that really does have a rich history within uh, this neoliberal movement. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's really something which we see a lot of background in neoliberals. And of course, Thatcher was very influenced by Hayek and by neoliberal thought more generally. And so, yes, this idea that there are individuals, there are families, and certainly the family played a really important role, as I show in the book, um, but certainly there was no overall economy or society if society was conceived as something which could conceivably have a common set of ends. And you follow Melinda Cooper, who was on this show a few months ago, in pointing to the fact that the family was extremely important um, and uh, in opposition to the welfare state. Some people are mystified by the association of neoliberal economics and family values, but they actually uh, are two sides of the same coin. Yes, look, I think that's really right. And Melinda's work is very important on this account. One of the things that I try to show, though, is that if we look outside of the US context, what we see is not a puzzle of how amoral neoliberal economists were able to find common cause with neoconservatives and evangelicals in support of family values. What we actually see when we look at the European neoliberals is that going back to the 30s and 40s, family values and a certain moral conservatism were part of the neoliberal project from the very beginning. And uh, as you point out here, uh, sometimes people think of neoliberalism as an American thing or an Anglo-American thing, but in fact, uh, it was uh, very much continental European as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the, I mean, the Austrians, figures associated with the Austrian School of Economics, like Hayek, like Ludwig von Mises, played a really central role, as did the Germans, the so-called auto-liberals. And I do focus also on the Swiss, on William Rappard and his projects for international order. So absolutely, it was a continental European phenomenon. There were people from the US at the very beginning, uh, people like Freedmen were part of the Montpelleron Society from a really quite a young age, but certainly some of those key figures were European figures. What about the relation of these foundational neoliberals to colonialism? And the, the movement really has really got going. It was in its youth just as the uh, decolonization uh, was underway. They had a view of the hierarchy of civilizations. How racialized was it? And what, about, what was their relationship with or attitude towards uh, colonialism? 
Yeah, well, that's one of the really important stories that I tell in the book because I think that colonialism and decolonisation were absolutely fundamental to the consolidation of neoliberal thought. So, yes, they had an account of civilization which was absolutely racialized, but it was very interesting in so much as race and economics blurred into each other to such an extent that they could hardly be distinguished. So for someone like Ludwig von Mises, for instance, the so-called higher races were those with a greater capacity to collaborate through the division of labour. So extended market relations became a marker of civilization. And in this, they were drawing on the thought of the Scottish Enlightenment, on people like Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson and a stadial vision of history. But they really brought this to bear in the context of colonialism. And certainly in their early days, someone like von Mises in particular was very, very critical of the colonialism of the mid-20th century. But they were largely critical because they saw that the British Empire in particular had been supposedly taken over by the Fabians. They were very critical of the social democratic and planning aspects of mid-century colonialism. And so what I suggest in the book is that really what they objected to in social democratic colonialism was not the colonialism, it was the social democracy. So once you saw anti-colonial movements develop, those neoliberals who had previously been quite sceptical about colonialism became strong defenders of colonialism and particularly of the earlier British Empire, the supposed free trade empire, and they really mobilised against particularly post-colonial demands for global income redistribution and economic sovereignty. To someone coming out of a Marxist tradition like me, uh, violence is very much part of economic relations. The neoliberals were very uh, intent on splitting uh, the political and the economic. So uh, war and violence and imperialism belong to the political sphere and not the economic sphere. Commercial transactions are themselves civilizing and, uh, and sweet even, right? Yeah, that's right. So I argue that they took up this older argument that had first been really identified by Albert Hirschman in his great book of 1977, The Passions and the Interests. And there Hirschman identified this earlier political argument for capitalism and for markets that he traced to people like Montesquieu, uh, whereby commercial relations served to tame violent passions and to direct people to pursue their interests in a commercial sphere. And he argued that this idea had essentially collapsed by the time of the Napoleonic Wars and that certainly no one could believe it by the 20th century. But I show that the neoliberal thinkers actually revived this argument that a commercial sphere was a sphere of peaceful, mutually beneficial, non-coercive relations and that all of the violence was essentially a product of political relations and the political realm. So we saw that certainly in relation to imperialism and they really went out of their way to challenge Marxist and Leninist conceptions of imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism and argue that actually imperialism was a sort of anachronism left over from an older time of states and that the way to overcome imperialism was through commercial relations on a global scale, making national territories irrelevant which, of course, meant ensuring that the corporations that had always exploited the global south under colonialism would be free to continue to do so after independence. Now, switching to the other strand of your story, uh, almost exactly at the same time Mont Pelerin was having its inaugural conference, the UN was uh, developing uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
How are these um, not in opposition so much as, as parallel developments? Well, on the one hand, obviously, they both emerge out of World War II. They're both responses to what is conceived in both cases as a crisis of civilization. But, of course, there were huge divergences between them at that time in 47. And in particular, the neoliberal thinkers were horrified by the extensive list of social and economic rights that was included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But what I want to show is that as time went on, the neoliberals didn't simply dismiss the idea of human rights. They developed their own version of it and that that version, which prioritised individual liberty and prioritised the use of the state to protect market relations in particular, became particularly influential on later generations of human rights NGOs. The colonial powers in particular, though, were really concerned about keeping uh, the uh, economic and social rights aspects of the Universal Declaration to a minimum. And even the United States was not very enthusiastic about a lot of that stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we think that because of the New Deal that the U.S. was like greatly enthusiastic. But by that time, that New Deal consensus was really fragmenting. Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the U.S. delegate, was under a lot of pressure to ensure that the social and economic rights were as vague as possible and were framed as better standards rather than as absolute rights. And certainly the major colonial powers, and especially the UK, ironically, the same government that built the welfare state sent its delegate to the drafting of the Universal Declaration with strict instructions that there should be no social and economic rights in the Declaration. And of course, these delegates were also very concerned that there would be no specific reference of the colonies. This was something that was fought over bitterly during that period by the Soviet delegates, by delegates of newly independent states like India. I'm speaking with Jessica White, author of Morals of the Market, just out from Verso. Both in the Mont Pelerin crowd and in this uh, United Nations convocation, there were um, strong traces of Islamophobia, hints of what we see today. Uh, how did that figure to, to both these uh, groups? Reading a lot of the early neoliberal thinkers came across this constant analogy or this constant substitution of communism and Islam. So they would constantly make claims about how communism is the new Islam. And this very much came out of, say, the Austrian context, the idea of the Habsburg Empire, the bulwark against the threat of Islam. And the neoliberals really constantly framed the Cold War in these terms of a sort of a campaign against the Muslim hordes. And they also had this really racialized account of socialism and social democracy where they constantly talked about it as this threat from the East, this threat to Western civilization associated with individual liberties and free markets. And you saw similar things in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where particularly a figure that I look at a lot is Charles Malik, who was the Lebanese delegate, who is himself an Orthodox Christian and very, very committed to an idea of human rights as a legacy of so-called Western civilization. And he fought very hard over this question and particularly over the idea of a right to change one's religion. But it's interesting that both uh, these movements, neoliberalism and human rights discourse, uh, were both uh, suffused with a, a fondness for Christianity and uh, really played a much larger role than uh, people might appreciate. Yeah, look, I think that that's absolutely right. And also this idea that they had of Christianity as definitive of the so-called West and 
this was very prominent amongst the neoliberals and they really believed that Christianity sort of provided a lot of the moral framework that a market order required and it was also very strong during the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and so those delegates who did not come from Christian societies or nations among whom there were many really tried to challenge this idea that you include this sort of Christian natural law language in the declaration. Chang was constantly saying look I won't make you read Confucius but don't tell me that I have to accept Thomas Aquinas as the basis of a supposedly universal account of human rights. <laughs> universal isn't Catholic, right? <laughs> so let's fast forward like 25 or so years to Chile and the overthrow of uh, Allende's government by uh, General Pinochet. There, of course, neoliberals uh, famously um, turned the country into their playground. But then also human rights uh, discourse uh, reaches age of majority there. What happened in Chile uh, with the human rights folks? I mean, and obviously uh, the dictatorship of, of, of Pinochet was very, very brutal. But um, curiously, he let the human rights people in to observe and report. What were they doing and why was he so open to that kind of, uh, of, of scrutiny? Look, I think that it comes down to the question that we were talking about, about civilization. And I think that while Pinochet, for instance, gave orders that leftism had to be completely eradicated in Chile. He saw human rights as something that a civilised society did. And so, therefore, these human rights NGOs that were largely coming from the United States, although not exclusively, were given far more leeway to a large extent the uh, international NGOs were given freedom of movement to move around the country and to conduct investigations. Of course Pinochet made claims about why are they investigating us and not Vietnam or not elsewhere but they certainly got a very different treatment to the communists and I think that many of these NGOs in Chile did very brave and very important work but they also tended to accept what I portray as a sort of central neoliberal dichotomy whereby the problem is politics and the solution is civil society. And this just happened to coincide precisely with the aim of the Pinochet regime, which was to depoliticise Chilean society in order to let market relations rule. When the Pinochet regime started to adopt a new constitutional order, the NGOs essentially said, okay, this is a positive step. We're now moving forward. We now have a constitutional and legal regime. But what we're seeing today in Chile is that that constitution implemented during the Pinochet era is still the major barrier to any kind of transformation of the neoliberal model. When you say civil society, what did they mean uh, precisely by that? Well, it's a really interesting question because I mean, for the neoliberals, civil society simply meant market society. And I think that while we tend today to think of civil society as being made up of NGOs or activist organisations, I think that there was certainly a strong element of that idea of civil society as the realm of commercial and private power that was also taken up by human rights NGOs. As I recall, um, Hegel's view of civil society was not uh, very civil. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, civil society was a sort of Hobbesian realm of uh, war of all against all. And certainly it was the, the realm of economic relations, the realm of, and these economic relations being necessarily conflictual. And obviously, this is an idea that 
Marx took up in the most detail, the idea that this civil society was underpinned by profound violence and was also a space of exploitation. But for the neoliberals, this idea of civil society was absolutely sanitised. And Pinochet is a very interesting example, I think, of their model. So how was it that they could say things like, there is no doubt that personal freedom is greater under Pinochet than it had been under Allende. And I think it's because their model of freedom was about the freedom to participate in market relations. And they believed that the violence that was necessary to secure those relations was legitimate. What was illegitimate was coercion that interfered with the market relations, which is what they saw Allende's rule as having been about. You have some uh, differences with Naomi Klein's reading of what happened in Chile, um, like the uh, human rights people giving cover um, to, uh, to Pinochet. What's your objection? Look, my main difference there is that I think Klein um, and various others portray the neoliberals as essentially cynical, that what they did is focus on their own economic area of expertise and simply ignore the political violence and the torture that accompanied it. And we see elements of that. Friedman at one point said that no one would criticise a doctor who gave technical advice on how to prevent a plague. But actually what we see again and again and again in the neoliberals of that time, including the Chicago School, is actually a political defence of the Pinochet regime. So Friedman describes it as an economic and a political miracle. And he talks about this as implementing freedom. And so I think that rather than believing that the neoliberals simply focused on economic questions that were their own specialisation while turning a blind eye to the torture and the disappearance, we should look more closely at what a neoliberal account of freedom actually looks like and how they were able to endorse this model. Ludwig von Mises said at one point, there is in the market no coercion, no violence. And then he says, the state uses its power to beat people into submission only for the purposes of preventing actions which are disruptive to the market order. And I think that that's what we saw in Chile, and that's how the neoliberals were able to endorse it. They saw a state that was using its power to beat people into submission only against those who threatened the market order. And they saw that in the realm that they cared about, this market order, freedom was reigning. And then how do the human rights organisations fit into that? What the human rights organisations essentially did there was accept this picture that the problem was politics and that the solution to it was law or juridification. Reports of Amnesty International at the time, and they always just talk about how prior to the coup there was a, an atmosphere of tension or there was conflict, and we get these very sort of mysterious and universalising accounts of what was at stake. They very much bracket the economic questions. So Amnesty International, for instance, says even the use of starvation as a deliberate political weapon is outside of our mandate. They focused on torture, on political disappearance, which was, of course, crucial, but they tended to frame this as apolitical and therefore to promote this idea that the problem of Chile had been politics. And in a context where the regime was saying quite explicitly that its goal was to depoliticise Chilean society, to turn Chile not into a nation of citizens or political subjects, but into a nation of entrepreneurs, I think that this was really dangerous. 
You quote Arya Nair, the co-founder of Human Rights Watch, and uh, Kenneth Roth, its later director, as frankly uninterested in the economic aspects of the trade. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nair has consistently taken that anti-social and economic rights position. And Roth, too, says, look, the role of human rights NGOs is to name and shame, and this makes us unsuited to identifying and dealing with the sort of structural violence of economic relations. These organizations are largely funded by rich liberals, so perhaps that's not so shocking. That's an important uh, important context. And some of the reports that um, Merit Watch, the offshoot of Human Rights Watch, were putting out in the context of, say, the, the adoption of the new constitution, which was adopted under completely undemocratic circumstances, under conditions of extraordinary repression, they were talking about how the economy in Chile was doing very well at the time. The economy was doing very well for a very, very small section of the Chilean elite, for the vast majority of the population. Their livelihoods and their lives were far, far worse than they had been a decade earlier. And a lot of the uprising in the streets of Chile over recent months has been directed at that constitution, right? Well, that's absolutely right. And part of the story that I try to tell is that Chile was not simply a story of the Chicago boys introducing um, economic changes through unlawful violence. It was that, but it was also a constitutional story. And other sections of neoliberalism, including Hayek, who wrote the Constitution of Liberty, which is also the name of the Pinochet Constitution, and Hayek sent his materials to Pinochet, uh, public choice uh, Theory, James Buchanan, all of these figures influenced the constitutional process which was taking part in Chile. And that process was absolutely part of the depoliticization and the de-democratization of Chilean society. So Hayek talked about preferring a liberal dictator to a democracy lacking in liberalism. And this was really a liberal dictatorial constitution which aimed to take the vast majority of decisions, and certainly decisions about economic life, out of the hands of political bodies and out of the hands of democratic processes, so that even when there was a supposed return to democracy, nothing could be changed of the economic model. And a lot of these characters admired the U.S. Constitution, right, with its limits on um, popular power and uh, its the large uh, sway given to um, the courts to review legislation and strike down things they deem inappropriate. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was certainly their favourite model, perhaps until Pinochet, who I think they would see having uh, achieved something even greater with his constitutional model. But yes, they constantly talked about the United States as the constitutional model. Finally, I asked Quinn Slobody in this question, I'll ask it to you too. Um, what is the neoliberal vision of the good life? What is all this for? It's not like, you know, Marx talking about the full flowering of the individual under conditions of greater social richness and freedom. What is their view of the good life? Look, it's a very interesting question. And it's one that, in all honesty, you it's often very hard to discern. Because while they talk about freedom, for instance, they then qualify that massively by saying that, we have to submit to the market. We have to accept what Ludwig von Mises calls a margin of freedom, the most amount of freedom that a market order can provide us, which is essentially to adapt, to try to find a job, to work in the context in which we're, we exist. 
the greatest argument, the strongest argument that they have for a market order is that it's supposedly an order of peace. And I think that this is the, the argument that comes up again and again, that a market society is the only form of society in which individuals can pursue their ends without getting involved in irreconcilable conflicts. If that's what we're looking for, then the fact is that actually existing neoliberal societies have certainly not been very good at securing peace or preventing violence. That was Jessica White, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of New South Wales and author of Morals of the Market, just out from Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Free to Choose by McCarthy. Maybe I play it too much, but it's perfect for this sort of thing. Next, look at the work of the Bolshevik feminist Alexandra Kolontai. For that, we'll hear from two of three editors of Red Love, a collection of writings about and inspired by her work. For Kolontai, a socialist revolution could not survive, nor would it be very meaningful, without transformations in the nature of personal and romantic relationships. We'll hear from Michaela Masucci, artist, writer, educator, and guest lecturer at the Curator Lab at Konstfak University, Stockholm, and Joanna Warsa, program director at the Curator Lab and also an independent curator in Berlin. The book is published by Sternberg Press. Joanna Warsa and Michaela Masucci. Why this collection now? Is there something in our time that makes you think that Kolontai is particularly relevant? Well, yes, definitely. So Alexandra Kolontai as a as a revolutionary, as a writer, as a woman, definitely in her writings on one hand was very embedded in her times, but she was in some sense also ahead of her times. What she was advocating for women's rights, for her concept of love, as something that has to be taken out of a private realm into the public, it's still not fully achieved. And there have been some waves in last hundred years, probably some moments where her legacy and, and her life, her many lives have been revisited and probably around 1968 um, was one of those moments. And, and I guess perhaps we live again in the moment where her ideas are very pertinent and, and need to be, you know, maybe taken seriously and looked uh, zoomed in again. Now, what about her relation to the larger Bolshevik movement? Was there much interest among the party, the movement, in issues of gender, sexuality, or personal relations, the kind of thing that she was uh, concerned with? Maybe I will start answering, and I guess Michele can, can follow up on this. Well, uh, you know, first of all, she was the only woman in the first uh, Bolshevik government after uh, 1917. It, of course, tells a lot. And uh, she was perhaps maybe the only really sensitive to those issues. I think what is also worth mentioning is that she was um, on the streets on the Women's Day uh, when the very, very first protest uh, sparkling the whole snowball leading to first February Revolution and then October Revolution started. And actually all that started from a protest of women going out of the factories. 
And this is something, you know, a little bit forgotten because we tend to celebrate or, or look back at the October Revolution. But it's maybe interesting to recall, especially in the legacy of, of Kolontai, that it all started with women's protests. That's interesting because I think a lot of people gender revolution as masculine, you know, socialist revolution as masculine. But uh, the women's role was extremely important in the in the Russian Revolution in the in the run up to it. Mikhail, would you like to add something? Yeah, well, concerning the previous question, I think Kolontai was working very early on and inspired very much by women workers in the textile factories and factories around Russia. Uh, I mean, she came from a middle class or upper middle class background and basically trained her way into becoming a revolutionary socialist. And that was what she was. She was a revolutionary socialist, but she was also a revolutionary socialist very much engaged in women's situation and women's liberation because women were experiencing at the time and, and still today the harshest conditions. And uh, as a as a socialist, she also fought for this within the party. She was uh, engaged also in writing a lot. Uh, and the Bolshevik party had a, a paper that started in 1913 called the Robotsnitsia, uh, the Rom- Woman Worker, with uh, Ines Armand and um, Natesha uh, Krutskaya. And also Lenin's um, partner was very much engaged in this question. So she, she, she wasn't... Uh, alone in that sense. She was very much also in dialogue with Sylvia Pankhurst in England and Clara Setkin in Germany, where she was very much informed by the movements uh, that were going on in Europe. But when you speak, um, Doug, about gender of the revolution, actually, there is exactly in our anthology a text which exactly addresses this term, uh, and namely it's a text, a long interview with Bini Adamczak, who is a Berlin-based scholar, and also wrote this uh, short history of communism. He precisely uses this term of gender of a revolution, saying that so far the how we understand the revolution has been too masculine. And uh, 1917 revolution, but also 1968 revolution, uh, they failed because they didn't embrace what is considered more feminine, namely emotions and human bonds. And uh, to me, it's one of the most interesting contributions of, of, of our like, like analyzing the gender of the revolution. Now, taking off from Kolontai's relation to the Bolsheviks, for her, feminism uh, was not a nice word. She also has a somewhat problematic relationship with what people think of as feminism, which I guess today is we'd call bourgeois feminism, right? This is a different sort of thing from the strictly feminist tradition. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at the time, uh, socialism uh, among Bolsheviks was seen as enough in order to liberate everyone, and that would include women. Of course, Kolontai and many with her saw that this really didn't translate in in policies. On the other hand, she was Minister of Social Welfare in the first government, uh, so she had a lot of influence. And and I would say we we really need to find this gap uh, historically between October 1917 and I would say 19... 23-27, where there were a lot of interesting reforms. With Stalinism, you had this male-gendered uh, retreat and, and, and end, basically, of the most interesting parts of the Russian Revolution and the, and the Bolshevik Party. Uh, there was an influence from her and, and her comrades and, and lady comrades that was important at the time and that were strong inspiration in the 70s in in the States and in Europe among uh, Marxist feminists. 
because they intersected classical issues of feminism with uh, Marxist uh, uh, readings of society. Historically, and into the present, the radical left, the revolutionary left, has had problems with pleasure and sexuality. Uh, there's a deeply ascetic uh, strain in, in that kind of uh, political tradition that it's all about denial and discipline in, uh, in order to achieve the long-term goals of revolution. Kolontai obviously didn't shun pleasure or even luxury. So how do we reconcile this notion of revolution as ascetic with what her vision of both revolution and the good society would look like? Well, she was, you know, very clear about it. And this is what make her writing different from, for example, Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, Even if they had lived uh, to a degree similar lives, they were born just one year apart. But she was very much stressing since the beginning that emancipation of women were actually a very necessary part of the general emancipation liberation. And that true socialism could not be achieved without the radical change in attitudes to sexuality. So in her own diaries... She was very clear that the the change towards the sexuality uh, is um, one of the main goals of a revolutionary thinking, and and that the revolution actually is thinking the relations between through love and sexuality between men, women, and also children. One interesting thing is that the erotic dimension was not was not necessarily confined to one to one relations. There were many kind of you know many uh, way of of living love in multiple forms. So it was far beyond, um, you know, heterosexual uh, relations, even if she was, of course, woman of her time. So she doesn't uh, mention queer or any other relations. However, I I believe she paved way uh, for this kind of interhuman relations. Her vision of comradeship is deeply libidinized. Talk some about this idea of love comradeship. What What does that mean for her? She draws a lot from Engels' history uh, of of the kind of couples' relationships in capitalism, and uh, she also draws from Auguste Bebel's theory of the women, so-called women question. And at the heart of, of love or social relations is an, in a Marxist analysis of property. So in the bourgeois family relations, and, and which dominated basically the middle and upper classes, and structured the the working classes uh, situation in many respects there is this idea of that marriage and specifically the relationship between men and women are through uh, some sort of transaction and property relation and and this is very detrimental to a free and and open and sexually explorative uh, relationship so that's at the heart of her analysis around free and communal love, that in order for for you to have or for anyone to have uh, true love or comradely love, you have to liberate uh, relationships from these um, aspects of property and, and uh, ownership. But her vision was not one of what people sometimes call today a relationship anarchy or you know, free love in, in the classic sense. Uh, she does acknowledge uh, that uh, there was a new kind of morality that would take the place of bourgeois morality. Um, what did this revolutionary morality look like? She's also Nietzschean and, and in a sense very inspired by and colored by her time. So maybe in terms of sexual liberation, she's not that uh, experimental, but uh, the aspect is very much in terms of that the community or the people involved should determine both the sexual and, com- and, and the sexual and aspects of, of the relationship. And that aspect should be 
uh, explored together and also in based on trust. Um, so a form of eros that is not grounded on on uh, these private property relations uh, that you see in, in bourgeois relationships where you have a man that basically owns the woman in the in the marriage but it's not that explorative in terms i mean of course she in her novels explores a lot the question of going between relationships and letting go in that term that you should not try to be uh, jealous although you have might have these feelings if if you have open relationships you feel jealous for someone leaving you but uh, that is again uh, relating you to back to a, a question of ownership of trying to own another body own another person and she was not again for that I'm speaking with Joanna Warsha and Michaela Manucci two of three co-editors of Red Love a collection of writings about and inspired by the Bolshevik feminist Alexandra Kolontai the family. Uh, she's calling, in some sense, for the abolition of uh, the bourgeois family, but not, as she insists, not trying to take children away from their parents. So what, what was the vision of family life uh, she was working on? Maybe I can say something uh, more personal about her, because one thing that struck me from a biography I, I read of her was a moment where she, when, when she leaves her four-year-old son and she decides to go um, to study in Zurich. And uh, when she uh, takes a train, she pens two letters and one letter is to her family saying that she actually misses them uh, deeply and she wants to go back immediately. And one letter is to her comrades in Zurich saying how much she's looking forward to taking up of her studies. And I think that was a little bit her describing an inner conflict that many women perhaps uh, do still have and had uh, even more at the time. And for me, that was one of the, you know, just... an anecdote um, which maybe describes a little bit what was her driving force be, um, behind her introducing some crucial re- reforms when it comes, for example, to the child care, in order to enable, uh, to free women to be able to work, because obviously um, the work, women was either not working or if somebody had to work, and many women had to work, they were uh, forced prostitutes. So the idea of work back then for women was something unheard of. Yeah, it's as if she wanted to socialize the boring part of domestic life, uh, you know, the, the, the cleaning and the cooking and, and, and uh, the childcare, although childcare isn't all boring, <laughs> and, then, and then leave more room for um, pleasure uh, and uh, yeah. the, the development of human relations, right? Is that the idea? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's the idea. And that would have been, and in many ways was implemented within uh, Western welfare states and specifically through social democracy, although there you have again uh, a kind of uh, transaction interaction. You you buy even though it's through state subvention. You are hiring uh, childcare. You are mediating through uh, some sort of labor, private labor, or some form of uh, state institution. But in general, you you see the core of a welfare state in her thinking there. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about uh, the history of neoliberalism, and it's very clear that uh, the leading neoliberals were uh, very concerned with reasserting traditional family values. This was a very important part of their their, uh, agenda. Uh, They see a very uh, tight relationship between uh, the traditional family and um, their their vision of uh, a society ruled by the market. So some people, you know, often separate these two strands, but they're really very tightly connected. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> and and that's also one of the reasons why 
I think Kolontai is very relevant today. And this analysis of how we cannot seri- seriously separate the private sphere with what is going on in other aspects of our work life or social life and, and political life. And in a very early age, uh, articulated in a very uh, precise manner by Kolontai in her writings. In Oksana Timofeva's contribution to your collection, she writes about the whore as a kind of positive figure or as a prefiguration of uh, something like the subject in this revolutionary society. Uh, Kolontai herself was very opposed to prostitution and imagined that it would disappear. Uh, and her critiques of prostitution sometimes rub people in the 21st century the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Would there be room for something like what we call sex workers in, in this post-revolutionary utopia, or is um, it all going to be um, all relations uh, taken up by the uh, the comradely one? Yeah, well, the the communist revolution is the abolition of work, so you wouldn't have sex workers. You could have sex with more or less engaged emotional engagement, but uh, at the core of, of the communist critique of, of uh, prostitution it lies this very fact of people being dependent on a monetary transaction and selling your body. So you have a and, – and, and this is a very delicate discussion because, of course, that does not mean that you wouldn't side and be in total solidarity with contemporary sex workers. On the opposite, I think uh, – Kolontai would be the first to organize and be part and being in in a dialogue with these organizations and with unionizing sex workers. But uh, it's a difference between sex workers and the critique of prostitution. Uh, And and I think, of course, at that time, prostitution was a way for women to survive. They were very dependent on on the extra money you would get from prostitution as as a worker. So you would have 12 to 14 day hour work days and then you would on top of that have to prostitute yourself to to make make ends meet uh, the question is if we want to liberate uh, everyone we truly have to liberate them in in terms that they can choose that doesn't mean that we have to moralize sex and how you engage with sex as an individual it's about truly giving them alternatives as with the family you know, and uh, prostitution, we can't imagine really what uh, society would look like uh, if so many of the um, basic functions were socialized and economic compulsion was eliminated or severely reduced. We don't, just don't know what family life or sex life would look like in that kind of environment. I mean, we can dream, but we really have no way of imagining, do we? Well, we are getting somewhere maybe in terms of sexual liberation, uh, and probably Kolontai would be happy with some achievements. I mean, as Nina Power also writes in this book, on one hand, it's depressive to note how little from what she's writing and advocating for has been achieved. But on the other hand, when it comes to, to sexual liberation, to a degree in certain parts of society with the queer studies, maybe we can observe some kind of mutation of sexuality and, uh, you know, the free choice of um, even choosing your gender. So I guess... There isn't one utopic place, I would say, where we would find ourselves one day. I think the the labor, the work is to think through those concepts and being inspired by writers like Kolontai and think how how can this feed back to the reality in which we are today. A lot of what Kolontai is about, uh, I'm not sure where this phrase is directly from her, but it certainly summarizes a point of view. End to masculine egoism. That seems like a very tall order. Um, how How do we put an end to that thing? 
<laughs> I think this first thing to end, because we've seen in last century a lot of uh, failed revolutions, socialist revolutions, and I think in com what makes it common to all this is basically men that have, um, in one or another way, retreated or failed uh, the revolutionary ambitions that were um, declared at the start. Um, this is the case for the Russian Revolution. It was very much the failure of men uh, to the the whole community, uh, and and I think we we have to first deal with this uh, gender imbalances before we can think of socialist revolutions again. Joanna, any uh, point of view on how to end uh, masculine egoism? Well, maybe it's a time for, you know, uh, some men to take a seat back. And by the way, uh, many of them don't have another choice. Uh, so I'm not totally pessimistic, I think. Um, I, I'm, I'm in fun, as I mentioned earlier, the text of, of Bini Adamczak and, and thinking of a gender of situations or gender of revolution and gender of relations. And we are definitely a little bit too much still in the predatory uh, relations, but maybe slowly um, this might um, dissolve, uh, hopefully, uh, or in other asymmetries or other relations. It seems to me that the final message one would take from uh, Colin Tai is that you can't really have a successful revolution, socialist revolution, without taking very, very seriously these matters of gender relations, uh, erotic relations, personal relations, you know, friendship, comradeship, all these things, which I think a lot of people who think themselves serious political types tend to marginalize as fluff. Uh, but these are really very, very central to any kind of real revolution, both its you know, sustainability, but its desirability as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think if you look at, back at even, you know, at the Occupy movements and in general around political discourse and the idea of of libido economy, of fun, of emotions, why those moments, even if in the short time they failed, but why they were so important, because somehow they injected into politics, as we know it today, another dimension of relations between people. And it's um, including some kind of a funny, uh, funny, humorous, and maybe libidinal aspect, depending how we understand it. And probably uh, when we look in many at the many revolutions, but even Occupy movements, uh, very often I'm encountered with this argument, well, but it failed. But I guess if we take Kolontai writing, and that was, you know, she was right, she was actively writing in 1920-21, some of the things she has been advocating for have been only implemented um, 60s, 70s, 80s, or even not implemented till today. So I think it's important to take her writing, but also to take other historical instances of recent um, uprising and to think uh, about them in some kind of a long durée. Those were Joanna Warsha and Michaela Masucci, two of three editors of Red Love, a reader on Alexandra Kolontai, published by Sternberg Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go over there some of a meaningless pop song by the primitives, Crash. Till next week, bye. Watch, watch your